This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You are listening to The Cable. It is 5 p.m. It is a Friday before a bank holiday, a long weekend coming up here in the United Kingdom. I'll be here Monday. I'm Guy Johnson. Alex Steele is over in New York, or at least I hope she is. Uh, This is The Cable. Alex, it has been an incredible week, a week dominated by earnings. Uh, It has been a week that has basically seen the market, though, not respond to those earnings numbers. It's been fascinating to see just how a muted response we have had yeah. to these numbers. And and the tech sector in particular, that's been the story. Yeah, no, it, it really has. Uh, and, and I mean, Amazon's able to hit an intraday high, so maybe it just depends on like what kind of tech stock uh, that you're talking about. However, I think you're absolutely right. Is it Have we hit the peak, right? Is it as good as it gets? Uh, continuing to kind of permeate in the market and all of that already being priced in. But, oh, man, this week just killed me. This was a tough <laughs> one, I got to say. <laughs> I feel like we can all take well, a collective had, we've sigh had of so relief. Much, think about it. Kind of tidal wave of earnings. Mm-hmm. And you've We've also had a lot of data. Um, like today, we got the PCE number. Yesterday, we got GDP numbers. We've had European numbers as well. Double dip recession in eurozone. Uh, Banks over in Europe. I, you had the banking numbers to deal with, um, and then big tech to deal with. Um, so yeah. I'm quite glad it's Friday. I'm beginning to regret not taking Monday off, actually. But, yeah, I don't, I don't blame you. But I think it's going to rain, so I might as well, to be honest. Yeah, no, come to but work. still. Um, All right, let's get some other headlines here. Charlie Pellet is here with all the news. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. AstraZeneca confirms it plans to apply for American emergency authorization of its COVID-19 vaccine in the first half of this year after it missed an original target this month that raised questions over whether the company would pursue the clearance at all. The drug maker, which has pledged not to profit from its COVID shot during the pandemic, says the product it developed with the universe of Oxford recorded sales of $275 million in the first quarter. That is a fraction of its $7.3 billion in revenue. Barclays fell the most among European banks today after the bank's debt trading revenue and expense forecast disappointed investors. Barclays London shares down 7%. Global coronavirus cases have topped 150 million, with India remaining at the epicenter of the pandemic after reporting record new infections today. And Brazil's fatalities have now exceeded 400,000 as the country recorded more COVID-19 deaths in the first four months of the year than for all of 2020. France, meanwhile, says it found initial cases of the variant first detected in India and extended anti-COVID shots to all adults from June 15th. And HSBC Holdings Global Banking Unit will increase the number of analysts and associate hires and boost junior fixed pay as part of a bid to improve work-life balance for its staff, according, according to an internal memo seen by Bloomberg. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Thank you so much, Charlie Pellet. Really appreciate it. Um, junior bankers, Amazon workers, all getting paid more. You can kind of see where that uh, is going to go. Uh, Guy, what I think is interesting 
Uh, about the markets, too, is that we're a little heavy here uh, in the U.S. I just want to point out something that Robert Kaplan said, the Dallas Fed president, which I think it's food for thought, particularly as we head into the BOE next week and you have Bank of Canada uh, already sort of pairing back some of its bond buying. Um, He is saying that we may have to talk about tapering sooner than we think. And he Mm. talked about excesses in the market. He also talked about some financial uh, imbalances within the market. Those are the two, those are the key words, right? Those are the buzzwords so you have to wonder if that not thinking about, not thinking about, not thinking about tapering is still real. I, so here's my question. I don't know how the Fed is going to play this tapering narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, there does seem to be this timeline that they start talking about in the summer. They announce the details kind of going into the autumn, the fall, and then they kind of deliver upon it at the end of the year. But the data is coming through really thick and fast. And I'm just mm-hmm. wondering how the communication practice is going to work around this, because as soon as they start talking about it, the market's there. The, mar- the moment the market is super relaxed, I'm stunned at how surprised I- I'm stunned at how relaxed the market is. I'm really surprised by it. Um, that everybody just kind of like, yeah, the Fed's on rails. It's all going to be good. Mm-hmm. And then boom. Suddenly, it feels like it's going to come out of left field. That the Fed's well, like, you know what, we're going to taper. Well, that's been the whole the, the whole question mark. I think in, in, in terms of inflation coming out of nowhere, things that I'm looking at in terms of that is there was a headline on the Chevron call, which is happening right now, that talks about how Amazon, for example, hiring more workers and beefing up their business will lead to trucker shortages. Not the first time we've heard that. Amazon raising right. wages, junior bankers raising wages. It's a story on the terminal right now that talk about how Manhattan restaurants are struggling with a labor shortage that could just really hobble the industry. Like the shortage issue is real on real supply and real people. Yeah. And it, the question is, how long does it last? Can it really be fixed in the short term? The Fed's never really defined what full employment is, and and, mm-hmm. and economists are shockingly bad. At figuring out where that is. I, I remember going through this whole sort of phase where everybody was kind of like R star obsessed, Nehru obsessed, kind of where is the 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 kind of the non-inflationary sort of point in which which you get to. And then you, suddenly you get to the, the point at which the labor markets and, and the Phillips curve and everything starts to kind of kick in and mm-hmm. it gets terribly exciting. We haven't got a clue. I, I have no clue at all would be my takeaway. Totally. Economists really don't understand how this process works. They thought they knew where it was, and then it was a bit lower, and then it was a bit lower, and it was a bit lower. I just wonder whether the reverse happens on the way back up, that, again, we don't have a clue, and suddenly, boom, you've got labor market inflation. Yep. Yes, to all those things. Um, I mean, I think it just depends, taking away the inflation for a second, for the other supply shortages, like how fast can you plant a tree to get lumber? Like, how fast can you open up a copper mine? <laughs> Trees take a while. I feel like that could take a little while, to, to be honest with you. So, but I know it, so Do you know what's about... the interesting thing about trees? Oh. So the price of a tree... Yeah, I like this. Oh, oh I did not... this. Crack yeah. spreads. Lumber crack spreads. It's the lum- I, How insane is that? The price of a tree hasn't gone up, but the price of a plank has. Well, and there's all these stories about now you have some of the dealers like selling back the lumber to the supplier, so the supplier can then sell it back to like the the construction guy, which also elevates the cost. I you know I think that we need a deep like is, dive in I, the lumber industry. It, it is real. So so I, I I kind of built a shed the other day. You did. And that you're trying to get the right size of of wood is really difficult, and and there is a genuine shortage of the right size. Now some of that's Brexit related, and some of there's all kinds of other factors here in the UK. But nevertheless, there are shortages. I, there are shortages absolutely everywhere, and they're not manifesting themselves at the moment in higher prices. But what they are manifesting themselves in is really big delays. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder when the price hikes come. And then. 
But I do also wonder on the flip side, when do higher prices then hurt consumption? So at some point, would you say, forget this, I'm not going to build this shed, I'm not going to pay all this money for lumber, forget it. Like, when does that actually start to happen? Well, at the moment, people have got a lot of money. And Fair. Savings and I, rates super high in the U.S., for example. Yeah. I'm really interested to see. I, to your point about going out, I think I, I, I don't know yet because I don't think people are fully kind of engaged with the process. Mm-hmm. They're definitely starting to engage, and it's Friday night, and I can assure you the pub next door to this building is going to be humming as I walk through it in a few minutes' time. Um, but but I don't think people are fully engaged yet. And I also think there's, there is going to be a bit of sticker shock. Like You, you go out for dinner, you're oh not used gosh, to paying... Yes. Two hundred bucks. You you're like yeah, what's that exactly. now? Huh? And I just I, that sticker shock. I think is going to be really interesting to see how people work their way through it. But that's interesting that you point that out. So like, if you start paying two hundred bucks a pop to like go to a pub and go to dinner, are you like, oh, then I won't pay all that money exactly. for lumber because I'd rather exactly. go out. But if you're not going out, then the lumber price is fine. I hadn't thought of it like that. That's actually really interesting. So we'll wait and see. I, I think I I think I'm going the summer out tonight. Is, are you? Yeah, because it was my birthday on Wednesday, and my husband wants to take me out, which is great. But I'm like, oh, okay. But we're going to go out for the first time, the two of us, in like a year and a half. uh, It's going to be out. It's going to be out-out, isn't it? Out-out, yeah. Weird. Yeah. I look forward to hearing how that goes. Uh, (laughs) Okay, up next, we're going to be talking aeroplanes, or engines, more specifically. Two great subjects. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. Safran is a French engineering giant. You may not have heard of it, but I bet you've heard of what it makes. It makes uh, jet engines for both 737s, the shorts, uh, the wide body made by Boeing, and 737 backs, for instance, and also the A320 family, the narrow body family made by Airbus. It's part of the CFM project uh, in combination with General Electric. Um, we talked to Airbus earlier on in the week. We spoke to Safran's uh, CFO, Bernard Delpy, a few minutes ago to get his take on, on how the recovery is going to go in the aviation sector. Well, I think that we're... Uh... Uh, at the end of Q2 should be the turning point, uh, at least for our industry. Um, as you've seen, Q1 was uh, was weak, with a decrease in our organic growth by 38%. But we stick to, uh, to our guidance. So it means that things will improve quarters after quarters, and it will start in Q2. But we are not yet out of a crisis. We have a lot of uncertainties uh, in front of us, but we think that the trough may be behind us now. You make engines for the narrow body segment of the market, um, and that is the bit of the market that's going to come back first. How does it actually work, Bernard? Is it that we see the, the airlines needing more engines, they need more spare parts? How, how does the recovery actually work? What we're going to see first is the uh, recovery in aftermarket. I think that uh, many airlines, especially in in the us in china are preparing for the summer season so they need their aircraft to be ready to fly and they want to be sure that they have the potential to fly during the summer season so they are preparing their engines and that's what we're going to see first when it comes to oe so the engine that we uh, delivered to both airbus and boeing we think that 2021 should be flat, more or less flat, versus 2020, 
same level of deliveries, but we are preparing ourselves for the ramp up in 20, at the end of 2021 and for 2022. So the recovery in OE will come after the recovery in aftermarket. Just talking about that ramp, let's talk, let's talk about what is happening at Airbus. How confident are you that that ramp is going to happen? And how smooth do you think it will be? Um, we're, we're coming out of a pandemic, we're coming out of a crisis. Where do you think the bottlenecks are going to occur? Well, first, we, we follow what our uh, clients ask. So I think that Airbus has been very vocal on a strong recovery uh, starting in the second half of 2021 and some more increase in the rates of deliveries in 22 and then 23. So we, we, we just stick to Airbus uh, comments and uh, we are making ourselves ready. We think that uh, we may have some uh, bottlenecks here and there in the supply chain, but uh, not, not that uh, big that it could uh, prevent us from uh, ramping up um, again, because it's going to be the second ramp up for the Leap engine mm -hmm. after the ramp up in 2016, 2019. So we are preparing ourselves for the second ramp up. And that's going to be, I think, again, an exciting story. Uh, and there is no reason why uh, we shouldn't be ready to, uh, to face it. There's a lot of kind of jargon in aerospace, isn't there? Oh, yes. But so in oil, too. So it's okay. Like OE, original equipment. You kind of, you, you need to kind of... It needs translating. No, frack spreads? Original, mm -hmm. original equipment is like a new engine. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, I'm, just, I'm, just, yeah, I'm just here to help. Uh, I, I had to do frack some... Frack spread. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, frack spread. It's like how many crews are going to come back. You know, they all have their, their jargon stuff. Uh, I did do a lot of research the other day on narrow body and wide body and, and, and really drilled down a little bit. I felt like I went One down aisle, the nerd hole aisles. to kind of meet you on that. Um Anyway, so it, but we also talked to a, about sustainability with him, which I think is actually quite interesting. I'm actually talking yep. to the uh, the head of sustainability for Delta um, for my commodity show later on today. Uh, so that should be interesting. Sort of what comes first, chicken or the egg? The plane, the engine, the stuff that goes in the engine? Uh, nobody seems to know. I, it has to be the engine. I, the engines. I, the joke is you, you bolt an airplane onto an engine. <laughs> the engine is where the complexity is normally. Um, um, I, well, from one company story to another, we're going to talk Barclays next. That stock closed down by 7% in London. We'll talk about the why, what went on with all the trading divisions that's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Barclays had... Pretty tough day. It fell the most uh, among European banks on Friday. The debt trading revenue side, disappointing. The expense forecast, disappointing. Investors, Bloomberg caught up uh, with Jess Daly, the CEO, uh, and talked all about it. We did sort of a, a mixed result. Uh, in our equities business, uh, we were up uh, close to 100% actually year over year. In our FIC business, we were, we were slightly off of a very strong first quarter last year. But overall, the uh, investment bank generated a return on capital of over 20 percent, some of the most profitable levels this bank has had in well over a, a decade. That led to a profitability for the bank overall at roughly 15 percent, which is virtually triple what we did first quarter last year. Given the dynamics we've seen in the first quarter that have helped many parts of investment banking, when you look back at the first quarter, how exceptional does it feel or, or, or not? Does it feel as if that, that momentum driven by the larger size of global capital markets will be sustainable into the rest of the year? 
Yeah, you know, one, uh, we are projecting now economic growth in the U.K. Uh, uh, north of 6 percent. It should be the strongest year of economic growth in the U.K. since 1948. I think we're all seeing very robust numbers in the U.S. A lot of this is being driven by an extraordinary rollout of the vaccination program. Uh, in the U.K., over half the population now has been uh, has been vaccinated. Um, then, as you said, the capital markets have been incredibly robust. The central banks have used their balance sheets to inject an enormous amount of liquidity into the system. Uh, since the pandemic, Barclays has underwritten north of 1.3 trillion pounds of debt and equity instruments. So. The economy is very liquid. The capital markets have grown significantly. Just the credit capital markets alone has grown 40 percent in the last two years. So, you know, the wave we are riding, which other banks are riding as well, is real. Uh, and it is a financial market that is growing in, in response to the government response and the private sector's response to this horrible pandemic. One of the things that other banks are having to deal with, Jez, has been the fallout from the Archegos scandal. I don't see any reference, uh, just 11 minutes after publication, don't see any reference to Archegos in what I'm able to read this morning. Um, you, you seem to manage to keep out of this. Do you see opportunities in prime brokerage as other banks in the sector are rethinking uh, the, the exposure they have to that sector? Uh, you're correct. We have no involvement in Archegos and no involvement in uh, in Greensill, uh, uh, which is a, which is good for our risk function. Um, uh, our impairment numbers were low in the first quarter, but really driven by what we call our stage three losses. Our actual credit losses are down significantly, and that's reflected in the impairment number. Contrary to most banks, we did not release uh, reserves in the first quarter. We have an enormous impairment reserve of, of over nine billion pounds. If the economy continues in the current path that we see now, I think you'd see us releasing uh, later on in uh, in the year. What's the broad thinking at Barclays around returning to office and specifically around investment banking also? Yeah, so we've had um, um, you know, literally thousands of people working during the pandemic, from traders and salespeople in our major investment banking trading desks to the people in the call centers in India and in the, and in the U.K., and then very much across our 700 branches in the U.K., where you have all the social foot trafficking, and our employees in these branches have truly been uh, been. Uh, heroic. In terms of returning to office, uh, I think we were seeing is indication from governments that that uh, openings should probably begin sometime late May, June, uh, latest uh, uh, July. We, we will, one, take the lead from what governments are saying uh, about what they want to see. Uh, but then first and foremost will be the mental health and well-being of our of our of our colleagues. Um, uh, I think many of them would like to come back into the office to reconnect with their colleagues. Uh, mm. uh, you know, that physical presence, I think, is important for people. But also the pandemic has taught us that we can be quite flexible. That was just Daily uh, talking to Bloomberg uh, after some disappointing results. Remember, I said that stock closed uh, down by about 7%. Uh, percent. But it does beg the question, Guy, and, and I, don't, I haven't studied it well enough to know, but like, what is the sensitivity of Barclays stock to the UK economy? Um, it is less exposed than, say, a bank like Lloyd's, but it is a high street bank. So it does have some exposure to the UK. What has been a positive differentiator has been the ability of, of Barclays' strong 
iBank, the investment bank, to see it through this crisis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you've had a strong investment bank, you've done generally quite well. So Santander hasn't does, doesn't have a big investment bank. Lloyd doesn't have a big investment bank. They've had to rely on a consumer that has been hit and hit hard. But as the UK comes back, that retail side of things should do relatively well. I'm also wondering on the cost side as well. I, there are stories day after day, Alex, about junior bankers in particular needing mm-hmm. to be paid and paid more and the need to take on more junior bankers. I just do I do wonder whether the culture is changing and I do wonder whether or not costs are as a result going to just have to go higher. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at uh some of the headlines right now. I'm trying to find some of them. Um CLSA was one of them, right? Uh Wall Street. Da, 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 da. What else? What was the other this one? Is quite, this is got? quite far. I, yeah, I, well, basically, it was to, HSBC to today. Find it. HSBC. But there was one more, too. Uh, anyway. Well, it's been, there's been a whole bunch of them recently. I, um, ah, CLSA. And, 30% pay hike. That's huge. That feels like a lot. Okay, so 30% pay hike, great. But do you have to? Are you still having to work crazy hours? I think is the yes. big question, and I think they're going to have to. I think if if you want to deal with burnout, you've got to hire more people, basically. Mm-hmm. And I just do wonder whether the culture is go, is yeah. going to ultimately change. And well, it's a bit like it's a bit like the Biden proposal in some ways. I keep kind of trying in my head is sort of equating the two. Biden is in some way talking about an economy that is that is better for people, mm-hmm. but may, maybe less efficient, and therefore the U.S. economy is not as strong. But mm-hmm. actually, the people that are part of it are happier and healthier. Well, and this is, goes back to something I was talking about earlier in the week. It's the complete opposite of what we what we saw with Reagan and Volcker, where the whole point of what they did, raising rates to combat inflation and lowering the corporate tax rate, was to make businesses efficient. That that was the thing. And now it, it, the emphasis is completely sw- uh, shifting onto workers. And I guess we're not going to know how the pendulum, how far the pendulum swings. But that's going to be an enormous shift in how money is spent and even thought of in this country. Absolutely. We will uh, be talking about this, I think, a fair bit more. It's going to be interesting to see what the employment numbers look like uh, and just how much labor mm-hmm. is starting to grab a slice of the pie. He also talks a great deal about unionization. And I think that's going to be a big theme as well. That's huge. Tech next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, London. It's 5.30 where you are, 12.30 in the U.S. I hope you're at a pub listening to this radio show. I hope to be joining everybody there in about five hours' time. Um, in the U.S., we're having a little heavy session here. The sell-off is picking up a little bit of steam. The Dow's off by uh, triple digits now, by uh, 221. You also have um, the NASDAQ rolling over, as well as the S&P. Um, you had some uh, comments from Robert Kaplan, Dallas Fed president, about maybe it's time to start talking about tapering sooner than we think, talking about some imbalances in the market. Uh, that kind of started to weigh uh, on equities. You also saw the Treasury market move from some solid selling to like maybe want to be buying. Now you have uh, yields pretty much flat. Obviously, uh, the one exception is going to be uh, Amazon still able to eke out a game, but well off the highs. And in particularly considering the numbers they put up, we'll get to that uh, in just a second. In the meantime, we want to update you on some other news that's happening. Here is Charlie Pellet. I thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. UK house prices surged at the strongest pace since 2004 this month as the country eased out of lockdown and buyers rushed to take advantage of an extended 
extend a tax break on purchases. According to Nationwide Building Society, prices rose 2.1% in April after posting an unexpected decline the month before. They climbed 7.1% from a year ago to an average of 238,831 pounds. Economists had expected a 0.5% monthly gain. AstraZeneca does confirm it plans to apply for American emergency authorization of its COVID-19 vaccine in the first half of this year after it missed an original target this month that raised questions over whether the company would pursue the clearance at all. The drug maker, which has pledged not to profit from its COVID jab during the pandemic, said the product it developed with the University of Oxford recorded sales of $275 million in the first quarter, a fraction of its $7.3 billion in revenue. And global coronavirus cases have topped 150 million with India remaining at the epicenter of the pandemic after reporting record new infections today. Brazil's fatalities have exceeded 400,000 as the country recorded more COVID-19 deaths in the first four months of the year than in all of 2020. And France says it has found initial cases of the variant first detected in India and its extended anti-COVID shots to all adults beginning June 15th. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Thank you so much, uh, Charlie Pellet. So if you're like me, you probably brought your whole life on Amazon in the last month. Like that is where you live. Um, I clearly did that uh, for 365 days. Uh, doesn't seem to be changing, though. I mean, the pandemic shopping trend definitely continuing, Guy. Uh, Amazon reporting an yeah. enormous increase in sales. So the thing I will say about Amazon is that it's continued to invest in the infrastructure as this whole story has unfolded. And what is becoming increasingly clear is that the faster Amazon can deliver, the the bigger its market share opportunity is. Because you basically say, you know what, why do I want to go to the store when Amazon can deliver to this this to my house 100%. in five hours, one day, whatever it is. But the faster it comes, the more I the less I am likely to go and visit the store. And and that's just such a compelling story. And they're really good at it. And they're really good at scale. And they're getting better at speed. I, I it is it it looks as if they are not going to have the sort of the pandemic pull forward. They this is just a new reality mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. them. Ed Ludlow's been tracking all of the the tech companies this week. Ed Amazon seems to have been rewarded for what is a good set of numbers. But the broad takeaway this week actually and you you saw it in Apple, Apple and you saw it in Alphabet was the the market didn't necessarily reward what was really quite a an incredibly strong set of numbers, a really surprising set of numbers. And I'm still scratching my head at the end of this week trying to understand why. You've been talking to analysts, I'm sure. What is what is the story you're hearing? You know, there is a lingering concern always that at some point, especially on the e-commerce side of the business, that it stops. You know, Amazon paint this picture just as you say, where the the short-term boost to, to e-commerce buying directly linked to the pandemic goes away. But what Amazon would argue is that all the pandemic did, and this is across software, this is across cloud, all it did was accelerate a transition that was happening anyway. Um, You know, the main phrase that comes out of this quarter's earnings is staying power. Amazon has staying Mm -hmm. power. You know, the shares are up. We're at fresh records. There is concern the e-commerce business falls away. But if you look at the actual drivers of top and bottom line growth, 
it's away from e-commerce anyway. Cloud had a really incredible quarter. It makes up for such a big proportion of net income. Advertising was a big surprise. You know, advertising sales surged 70% in the quarter. And broadly, we know advertising is good. So, you know, there's, there's always one toe in the water with caution. But really, Amazon seems a little bit unstoppable at this stage. So the numbers are amazing. It did hit a record intraday high. However, however, as I mentioned, you're sort of, we're sort of at the highs of the session, and I, I almost wonder if we close lower here on Amazon. So it does still beg the question, though: Is all of that still baked in? Yeah. So one interesting takeaway uh, was that they moved Prime Day forward. They pulled it forward into the spring quarter, the, second, the current second quarter. And part of the distortion in this earnings period is the comparable with a year ago, right? Which was the COVID quarter. You know, March, April, May, June. When, when the severity of lockdowns was at its highest. I think you know, one thing that the analysts are trying to pick through this, this morning and this afternoon is how distorted our second quarter financials if Prime Day is pulled forward. You know, Prime Day gives a really big, almost artificial boost to the top line because you have such a frenzy of spending in and around those days. Um, but you're comparing it against a quarter a year ago where people just flocked to Amazon. You know, we're all too scared to leave the house, all too scared to go to the grocery store. Um, and in the grocery point in specifically, actually, brick and mortar sales for Whole Foods were down in the quarter, but up significantly online, which is kind of more evidence of that staying power that Amazon was talking about. Twitter feels like it's compared with the rest of the tech, te- tech sector, is in a different decade. If Twitter just feels like it's been left behind. It has this kind of core audience. That's because you're not it, on Twitter. You have a I handle and you're never on Twitter. Well, I just get, I've given up, to be honest. I, it feels like it's not evolved. And it doesn't feel like it has a business model that ha- has evolved in the same way that the rest of the social media sector has. Yeah, so here's the thing. 20% user growth in the quarter is pretty good for Twitter. You know, this was the Trump quarter as well. Remember, President Trump was removed from the platform on January 6th. And there seems to be no negative impact from that. As you say, the the weird difficulty is advertisers did not like Twitter in the same quarter where ad prices surged and volume surged for Facebook, for Google. I mean, this was an incredible quarter for advertising. The difference with Twitter is they have very brand-heavy advertising model. And... We also had some big political events in the quarter, right? You know, executives on the call were talking about how advertisers stayed away from Twitter because of the January 6th, uh, because of the capital riots. You know, they didn't mm. want to put marketing spend or ad spend on a platform where that conversation was taking place. Um, the other difficulty for, for Twitter as well was just their guidance. It was tepid. You know, they gave such a wide range of $980 million to $1.1 billion. The street was already looking to the higher end of that, and, and they seemed really spooked by Twitter not being so confident in itself. But, but it just doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's, it's getting the scale that it needs to. I, there are others coming into this space right now offering more innovative packages to, to wider consumer bases. Yeah, I think what's really interesting, actually, historically, Twitter has been very good at keeping investors looking to the horizon. Every quarter, they would talk about the product innovation, the new types of direct or targeted ads that they wanted to bring in. Selling premium access was one idea that was talked about. So, for example, if there's a high-profile person you follow, like Alex Steele, you're following Alex Steele, you want her content, you can pay for the privilege of of exclusive content from Alex Steele, just as an example. But they haven't actually got round to doing those things. That's creepy. Ed, always a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you, my friend. This is Bloomberg.
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Well, today is my sort of Super Bowl uh, when it comes to oil um, companies reporting Exxon and Chevron both out. I want to focus on Chevron for a second because in many ways, they're the best in class. They never cut their dividend. They actually increase their dividend uh, this week. They're spending less on CapEx. They're putting enough money into the energy transition to satisfy investors, so no one seems to be complaining. And their stock yet is down uh, by about 3%. So we talked to the CFO, uh, Pierre, uh, Pierre Breber, and asked him sort of, when are you going to get buybacks? Like That's what the market is really interested in. It was our strongest quarter since the pandemic uh, with our highest earnings in cash flow, um, some exciting announcements in low carbon, and the dividend increase that you talked about, and a really strong balance sheet. The dividend increase is consistent with our financial priorities. We've always said our number one financial priority is to sustain and grow the dividend, and that's why that's our first action. Uh, In terms of a share buyback, what we're going to look to is our ability to sustain a buyback program for multiple years through the commodity price cycle. And that means we'll want to have confidence around future excess cash generation and have the balance sheet in an even stronger position. So does that say something about how you feel about where oil demand or the oil price is going to go? This feels like maybe as good as it gets is what we're talking about with many different industries. So I wonder why not now? I think it's going to get better. Uh, you know, certainly in this country, there's reason for optimism with the high vaccination rates and the stimulus package that's coming. Uh, other countries have control of the virus. Unfortunately, a number of others do not. So we're not yet on a path to sustain global economic recovery. But as we look to demand for our products, gasoline is back to pre-COVID levels. Diesel's probably a little bit higher. Jet fuel is really the last piece, and it's poised for a comeback. We'll see that in domestic air travel, I think, this quarter and next quarter, and then hopefully international travel soon after. So, no, we're optimistic about the the future. We'll generate even more cash where oil prices are and with recovering refining and chemicals margins. Look, the oil price, as you say, and its derivatives pretty much back to where it was pre-pandemic. Your share price isn't. You came in at 121. You're trading at 104. What do you think the market's telling you right now? We have a simple message to investors. It's uh, higher returns, lower carbon. So we need to earn higher returns, and that's by being disciplined with our capital. And we need to sustain those higher returns in a lower carbon future. And so we are um, very aware of where our stock price is and working hard to win back investors to the sector. And we can do that by, again, generating more cash and continuing to advance a lower carbon future. And we had exciting announcements in terms of projects with partners, both Toyota, Microsoft, Schlumberger, uh, in low carbon businesses going forward. So that really, though, is the pinnacle of where this industry is right now, Guy, because the theme is energy transition. But the reality is something very different. And you can see it in the stock performances on Conoco and Chevron, which sort of are the leaders in that, versus, say, the BPs, which are doing a whole revamp of their business, versus Conoco and Chevron are just trying to get better at drilling for oil and then also doing some sustainability stuff. So in terms from an investment point of view, what do you do with that is my question. Do you stick with the companies that are kind of trying to make money right now and do so on an efficient basis? Or do you invest in the long term in a company that's trying to make the transition, which you don't you don't yeah. know they're going to succeed at. But this is why the capital return is so important. It's yeah. okay if they're going to make the transition, if they're throwing off massive free cash flow and you get a nice juicy dividend and you get buybacks, then you're happy to hang out and wait. That's the problem with the Shell and Total, uh, sorry, the Shell and BPs of the world that had to cut their dividend 
whereas uh, Chevron never had to. That's why the buyback question was so important this quarter. Like, I'll stick it out with you, man. No problem, as long as you're paying me the money. Um, and that's how you kind of see the differentiation uh, between the two. In terms of how critical the oil price is in all of this, I, the oil prices I mean, come back. Share prices haven't to the same degree. It's true because they're not as levered anymore because they're not spending on it, right? But you have to wonder if that changes a bit as they can turn around and give more cash to shareholders. Because at $80 Brent, $70 Brent, I mean, they're throwing off enormous free cash flow. A lot of these decks are like between 40 yep. and 50 So if they can keep turning around the cash flow, they're good to go. Promise, though. People don't want to have that in their portfolio. They really don't, because it looks bad, which brings us back to the whole sustainability ESG thing. So, it's pretty fascinating. Okay, My up Super next. Bowl, my jam. It, it's been Alex's Super Bowl. Mine as well, to a certain extent. Totally. Oh, we're, 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 like, we're rocking the Super Bowls. Premier League final, Champions League final, Airbus, Boeing, all these kinds of companies. Anyway, <laughs> politics next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. So all the talk from D.C. this week was the potential increase in capital gains, uh, cutting uh, uh, carried interest, etc., and sort of what that will wind up doing to growth, not to mention personal income tax rate as well uh, as corporation tax. So uh, David Weston joined us today um, on the show, and he talked to Gina Raimondo. She is the U.S. Commerce Secretary, and they talked about capital gains. You know, she worked used to be a Wall Street person, so they started talking about capital gains and how that would affect growth. What do you make of the Republican response to what President Biden is, is proposing right now? As they came out and said, this is a job-killing proposal because of the taxes. You've had to create jobs. You've had to invest money. What do you respond? Obviously, we strongly disagree with that. Look, the president is actually proposing cutting taxes. Uh, he's cutting taxes on uh, a lot of hardworking, middle-class, working-class Americans. He's raising taxes on the wealthiest among us and closing loopholes in the corporate tax structure, loopholes that were so large that last year almost 100 very large multi-billion dollar profitable American companies paid nothing in taxes. So I think when you talk about taxes, you, you want to be competitive. You don't want to be so far out there that it's anti-competitive. And, and these, his proposals are competitive. But, but more important than all of this, David, the investments that the president is calling for in infrastructure, in broadband, in job training, in basic research are absolutely vital for American businesses to remain competitive and, and, and necessary and have been delayed for far too long. So I think it's very good for business both big business and small businesses. Uh, what about the claim, and you would know this particularly because you had to raise funds as a venture capitalist, the claim that if you really eliminate the preferential treatment for capital gains, it'll be much more difficult to really get the capital put together. People will not invest for long term. Yeah, so first of all, I don't believe that to be true. Second of all, there isn't really great evidence to back up the claim that an increase in capital gains taxes will result in a decrease in innovation capital. Um, also, having been in the business and having spoken over the past week and a half to many uh, folks in the business in one-on-one in, in -on -one conversations, they'll tell you the same thing. You know, entrepreneurs like to invent, like to create businesses. Venture capitalists, you know, they're going to continue to invest in those entrepreneurs. So, and, I, and truthfully, I think there are many who believe, even in the business, that 
taxing, uh, giving preferential treatment to carried interest was never really fair. So I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's good for business. It provides the money we need to make these important investments. And I don't, I don't worry too much about, um, you know, risk capital drying up. All right, well, she's not, Gina Raimondo, U.S. Commerce Secretary, but Wall Street most definitely is. Uh, joining us now, Alex Wayne, White House editor. Um, hey, Alex, w- what are we realistically going to see in terms of taxes? It's a great question. I think I think realistic, realistically, we're going to see uh, whatever people like Senator Joe Man- Manchin and Senator Kristen Sinema uh, want tax levels to be. Um, the, the Senate is so narrowly divided that any tax changes are going to have to pass through what they call the reconciliation process, which means uh, having the Democratic Party, the 50 Democratic senators unified. Um, and that'll mean uh, Joe Biden will have to adapt his plan for, for whatever the moderates, uh, the, the, the moderates in the Democratic Party want. Alex, if yeah. the Democrats lose control of Congress in the midterms, what happens? How short a, uh, an impact potentially could some of these taxes be, be in for? How permanent are some of these taxes? Is, it, is this a short-term hit? Is this a long-term hit? How embedded do they get into the system? Um, well, I think we've seen tax policy really fluctuate quite widely over the past uh, decade, honestly. Um, seems like, our, you know, the tax code changes pretty significantly with, with every president, thanks to, um, thanks to the, the Senate's reconciliation process, which allows the changes to be made fairly easily. Uh, remember that, that Trump changed the tax code in some pretty significant ways just three years ago, four years ago, I guess. Um, three and a half, let's call it. So, you know, here we are four years later, we're looking at another pretty significant uh, tax overhaul. So I, I would say that even if Republicans win control of Congress in, in 2022, uh, these changes, whatever, whatever Democrats decide to do later this year, will probably stand until uh, Joe Biden's presidency is over, uh, because Republicans can't change the tax code again without the president's agreement, and Joe Biden's going to be there until 2024 at least. So I guess I have to also wonder, too, like, what's just going to be whipsawed at the end of the day? Like, if you're a company, are you like, cool, I'll go to 28, then I'll go to 21, then I'll go to 28, then I'll go to 21? Like, it just, it just feels like um, how, do, how do they really take this into account? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't envy tax accountants for major corporations. Who, They're going to make so uh, much money. They're good. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. And so are tax lobbyists in exactly. Washington D.C. By the way, there, uh, it's it's uh, it's it's big years for them. The last uh, the last decade, um, you know, it's I, I I I think I think corporations. I have a feeling that corporations kind of don't significantly care whether the rate is twenty one or twenty eight or twenty five, which is the number that Joe Manchin has been using, yeah, I think you're right. um, I, you know, I, I think they can they can probably they can probably adapt their their business to accommodate. Is, is any that kind true? Of- is that true? If Ireland still has a really low tax rate, do you need some sort of international cooperation so they so they don't have to say to their shareholders, "Look, we can move money offshore or, wh- or whatever kind of place it needs to be, so that we can be competitive." Does there need to be a kind of an end to the race of the bottom internationally for that to be the tr- to be the case? Yeah, well, you know, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has, has talked about trying to reach some sort of international agreement on on uh, on on taxation, so that they're so that the, the corporations cannot so easily exploit these these 
significant differences between between nations. But I think, you know, in this day and age, corporations also have to think about the public relations hit they'll take if they move a bunch of jobs to Ireland or anywhere else, really, in the United States. Uh, they're going to get beat, beat up by, by politicians on, on both sides of the aisle these days. There's a, there's a lot of uh, protectionism in, in both parties at this moment. Okay, Alex Wayne, always a pleasure. Some great coverage coming out of Washington at the moment. Alex Wayne, White House editor, uh, joining us on the Biden 100 days and also the tax plan going forward. Have a great weekend, everybody. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.